Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Welcome to Lost in Science for another week and we have half an hour of science on your radio for you. It is the best of the science world right here. My name is Claire and this week I have a special report from uh, the Eureka Prizes, the Eureka Science Prizes that just took place in Sydney at the Australian Museum. Um, Chris, you know, the, you, you remember the Eureka Prizes, the Eureka Science Prizes. They are known as the Oscars of the science world. They are. Is it? Because like, it was named after that thing that Archimedes yell at Eureka when it's in the bath. Yes. So it's got something to do with the bath? Is that what it's all about? It's about... No, well, no. It's, it's, I mean, it's got nothing to do with the bath. Okay. But, um, but I think in, in the past we've – you know how um, the Oscars are actually the Academy Awards, but we call them the Oscars because of the statue. Oh, yes, yeah, yeah. We were thinking last time – Oh, that's right, yeah. That we should call them the Archimedes or something like that. Yeah, the Archies or the – The Archies. But there's the Archibald Prize. That would probably, oh, that yeah. doesn't work, does it? Yeah. We had the Rikis. The Rikis. Once again, we are at a loss of what to, to call them. Exactly. But they are a pretty amazing um, science prizes, not, not least of all because um, we get to have an insight into what sort of groundbreaking new research is happening around Australia at the moment. And there's some super interesting research around how dragonfly wings actually mechanically kill bacteria. It's pretty fantastic. It is pretty fantastic. Anyway, I'll be talking about that and some of the other research that is taking place. What else do we have on the show, Chris? Well, I believe that Stu is going to be on the show. He's interviewing Dr. Jochen Brox from the Australian National University about a discovery of an algae explosion 650 million years ago. So life on Earth, about 650 million years ago, life on Earth really kind of expanded, like animal life blossomed. There was all these new weird creatures. And they're (laughs) suggesting that this algae explosion, this um, increase in the amount of algae is what was responsible for, made it possible for there to be new life, new forms of plant and animal life dominating the world. So that's pretty exciting. That is super exciting. Well, I'm looking forward to hearing that interview. And you know, something else that I read um, recently was maybe not 650 million years ago, but there have been some new fossils that have been discovered with some whales that look a bit more like sharks. Is that right? Oh, yeah. So, have well, you heard anything well, about that? Yeah, look, I guess I get, look, let's, let's take the time to look at a bit of science news, I suppose, Claire, is what you're suggesting here. Yes, there have been some, some fossil discoveries. Researchers at Monash University and Museum Victoria uh, have looked at some fossils of early whales, sort of the, the ancestors of the modern whales, and found that they um, they basically had sharp teeth. They were more like predators and that sort of thing, which is um, kind of not the picture we, we often have of whales, especially because they, as far as we know, they evolved from you know land-based herbivores, you know, related to cows and hippopotamuses and that sort of thing. And the idea that they were fearsome predators when they first moved in the ocean is it's a bit startling, but hey, there are still like killer whales and stuff. Today. Yeah, there are still killer whales, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So it suggests they started off as predators and then later ah. on they evolved into the big 
baleen sucking monsters that we're, that we I mean, all know and love. They they still eat krill. I mean, they're not eating. Yeah, but they're not like with sharp teeth. They've got <laughs> baleen with the, that filters it out. Sperm whales have teeth, don't they? Yeah, they do have teeth. Yeah, yeah. they eat giant squid at the bottom of the ocean. Exactly, terrifying, but not to humans. <laughs> Pretty exciting. If actually. you're a giant squid, terrifying. Yeah, the giant squids put up a good fight. I'm sure. Well, in other science news and other animal news. Um, my favourite sort of news. Can you bring to mind a picture of an African wild dog? Uh, they're kind of spotty, I want to say, with like yep. big, big ears. Yeah, they're very, very cute. cute. Looking, very they're cute very looking, cute yeah. looking. They Some sleep pe- a lot when you see them in the zoo. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, they're in a zoo. Mm. Some people sort of confuse them with hyenas, but they're much cuter than yeah, hyenas. Yeah, hyenas are pretty ugly. No, no offence to the hyenas out there. <laughs> But uh, if you're listening, <laughs> anyway, don't um, come looking for me. <laughs> don't come looking for me. Don't come knocking on your door late at night. Some new research, uh, actually it's Australian research, um, has just come out looking at how African wild dogs sneeze a lot when they want to go hunting or when they want to sort of corral a group of other African wild dogs to go hunting. So um, the researchers found that the more sneezes they do, the more likely the rest of the group is to get up and and go and, wow. and, and um, you know, corral together and go, um, you know, hunt a mongoose or whatever they, they're hunting over there. I don't know what they eat, actually. It's interesting. Like, <laughs> domestic dogs sneeze as well, and they often sneeze when you're playing with them. Um, <gasps> I, call it, I used to call it allergic to fun. You know, you have, you have a good time, they just start, and you start sneezing. So I wonder if there's like a thing, an evolutionary thing that dogs with sneezing. Maybe. Allergic to fun? We should look into that, yeah. Or maybe um, your dog's just trying to tell you that it's time to go hunting now. Possibly, the yeah. The fun is over, and it's time for dinner. Okay. Well... <laughs> More exciting news are uh, coming up in the show, I guess. So let's get on with it. So once again, the Eureka Science Prizes, also known as the Oscars of the Science World, have been announced. Um, congratulations to all those nominated and the winners. It's, this is a pretty special time of year for the science world, I would say, Stu. So the Eureka Prizes are just after Science Week, aren't they? Yep, yep, normally just after Science Week. Sometimes I think in the past they have been during Science Week, but then there was just too much science in the week, so they brought them outside of Science Week. Too much science for one week to hold. (laughs) That's why it has to be 10 days, exactly. So the prizes are for outstanding science teams and scientists, and um, it's always great to have a look at what sort of research is winning these prizes because normally it's pretty amazing stuff that's currently taking place all across Australia. And it's like, yeah, it's only Australian scientists, right? It is. It's Australian science only. It is Australian yeah. science only, like you say, the logies of the science world. <laughs> <laughs> and they're held um, via the Australian Museum in Sydney. So 
some of my favourite research to win a prize at the Eureka Prizes are scientists from Swinburne University who have discovered that um, the surface of dragonfly and cicada wings physically self-sterilises without any chemicals necessary. So the actual chemical structure of the dragonfly wings? The mechanical structure of the dragonfly wings can, like, kills bacteria. Wow. It, it isn't even a chemical thing. It's a it's a mechanical thing. So, so it's it like physically a, the physical shape of the wing. That's somehow. right. Yeah, wow, that's yeah. Amazing. Um, on a microscopic level, as you can imagine. So the wings have these tiny spikes that are all over the surface, and they're called nanopillars. I guess there's the nanoscale, t- the ten to the minus nine. Yeah. Yeah. Not to be confused with nano pillows, which they find <laughs> in nursing homes. Being nano naps, yeah, not to be confused. Exactly. So these nano pillars can catch and rupture the bacteria, and eventually they kill the bacteria. So there's such a small scale they can literally pierce a bacteria membrane. Yep. Wow. Yep. Um, So the researchers are hoping to use these learnings from the cicada and dragonfly wings to create a new generation of nano textured materials which can hopefully be used for things like medical implants uh, that will physically stop and kill bacteria uh, that, you know, that won't run out of a chemical or an, an antiseptic or anything like that, that won't allow bacteria to build up. Yeah, so I guess, you know, the fact that it's a physical process, it's a physical action, means that it's pretty tricky for a bacteria to develop resistance because you're basically physically squishing it or poking a hole in it and all its... Exactly. Leak out. So exactly. There's no, there's you no would physically you can... have to grow a thicker skin, or, yeah. or you know, or uh, like change dramatically to avoid being killed. Mm. It's like you know having to evolve against a um, steel dagger or a gun or something like that. Yeah, yeah. It's it's a it's a few more steps than just um, a, a metabolic pathway to change. Yeah. Exactly. So they won the Eureka Prize for scientific research. So I'll be looking forward to hearing um, a bit more about them. Um, in the future. And another impressive winner was the Infectious Disease Research winner, which was a team from Murdoch Children's Research Institute and the University of New South Wales, and also Solomon Islands and Fiji, um, both of their ministries of health. Now, these guys have all been working together um, to investigate scabies and trying to develop a way to rid the world of scabies. Now, as you might know, scabies is a microscopic um, microscopic parasite that lives under your skin. Um, it's an ectoparasite and it is associated with extreme itchiness, but also bacterial infections, kidney damage, um, and plus there are a lot of debilitating social and economic consequences when you've got scabies. It's pretty awful. Scabies. Yeah, if you've got a chronic uh, infe- chronic infection. infestation. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so the researchers conducted clinical trials in Fiji and virtually eliminated scabies um, using an orally administered drug called ivermectin. And considering this infection affects somewhere around 100 million people around the world and is quite a quite a big issue in um, our Pacific uh, neighbours, it's had quite a big implication for global health and development. So basically they just take some medicine and it goes away? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, pretty much. But it hasn't been recognised on this global scale as such a big issue. So I think the work of um, these institutes and um, government ministries has, is sort of helping 
to sort of say, hey, look, if we wanted to, we could eliminate this. Yeah. Yeah. And another winner was um, the prize for citizen science. And I always love a citizen science project. They are my favorite. This was the team behind the Nuka We Study Black Country, which is We Study the Country, um, which is a project from Nuka up in uh, East Arnhem Land. So this project was a knowledge exchange between Indigenous communities and scientists and is a collaboration between uh, Macquarie Uni, um, Nagundi Elders and Nyugamangi Rangers and also community members from Nuka. Now, the project has been pretty amazing and instrumental in finding new populations of threatened species within the Arnhem Land region um, and also preserving wetlands, bringing people to country and traditional and maintaining traditional languages. And one project that was a runner-up on the night and something to look out for in the pharmacy, um, it didn't it didn't win, but it was a runner-up. Scientists have invented a sticker that changes colour when you have had too much sun. So the sticker starts as blue, you put it on you put it on your arm or something, and then if you've had too much sun, it turns white. Just like dog poo in the sun, and, it, and it's made of the same. It's made of the same stuff. As dog poo, the titanium dioxide that they use in dog food to give the dog food a lighter colour is the reason that dog poos turn white. All oh, right, in the sun. Yeah. So this is the same process. Is so using just, this titanium just dioxide, using it for good rather than just ghost dog poos. <laughs> On the footpath. Anyway, so look out for the sticker in stores in a couple of years and um, we can all pat ourselves on the back for a bit of Australian ingenuity. Um, And you can check out all the winners on the Eureka Prizes website. Based today in you, and and I noticed that people refer to you as a is it a biogeologist or a geobiologist? <laughs> I mix it up all the time too. It's geobiology. You know, if if geobiology didn't exist, someone would have to invent it because it started really with geophysics, then came geochemistry, and geobiology was a logical extension. And it's becoming a huge field. Did you start off in the biology end or the geology end? I actually started off in the chemistry end. Right. I'm a chem. Training and I, I'd rather actually prefer to call myself paleo biogeochemist. At, at <laughs> least, it's, at any party, everyone is stopped at that point. Yeah, well, it's, it's certainly a mouthful. Now, <laughs> as a chemist, how did you how did you get involved in looking for algae? Well, well, I really have to go twenty years back, thirty years back then, um, because my my hobby was collecting fossils. So we moved from northern Germany to southern Germany. It's beautiful hills here. Uh, can, you can find a lot of fossils, and my hobby became collecting fossils. But then I studied, I studied chemistry, and at the end of my master's, having spent my my time in the basement in the dark darkness at an electron spin resonance spectrometer, 
you know, in toxic fumes, while my geology colleagues were somewhere in South America collecting minerals and fossils, I thought, well, you know, I have to sort of get the turn to, to do geology again. And so I actually simply just Googled chemistry, geology to see what the interface is. And I found um, organic geochemistry. And I found someone in Sydney, Roger Buick. He was at the University of Sydney. Um, and just asked him, well, do you know you need a German chemist? And he said, wow, this is very exciting because I've just found the oldest oil in the world. And uh, back then I didn't know. Back then I didn't know that you can actually analyze ancient life looking at oil. So if you, if you go actually and fuel up your car, your diesel truck, uh, there will be billions and billions of ancient molecules derived from dead organisms that died in ancient seas hundreds of millions of years ago. And you can analyze the structures of these molecules and learn something about the organisms that existed. So, so this is yeah, it was 1997 when I did my PhD at Sydney Uni. Oh, okay. People might think, well, you know, they don't cl clean their swimming pool and they get algae growing in their pool, but algae's algae's more than just a uh, more than just a nuisance in the swimming pool. What what's so important about algae? Why why do we care that it that it's been around for so long? Ah, right. So you actually said something very interesting here. What you have growing in your swimming pool is actually not algae at all. The green stuff growing on the wall, or if you really don't look after it, the entire water becomes green. They're cyanobacteria. So these are phototrophic bacteria with extremely small cell size. And this is exactly the things that we analyzed. We analyzed the transition from when, well, if you want to, your giant oceanic swimming pool turned from a cyanobacterial one to an algal one. And uh, what's so interesting about these green-colored organisms is that they produce virtually the entire energy of our ecosystems. So on land, animals would not exist if plant would not convert solar energy into chemical energy, into organic matter, into food. Essentially, plants produce food. In the oceans, it's the same. It's the algae and cyanobacteria producing all the food. And they're the base of the food chain. And the base of the food chain really decides the entire amount of energy available for the entire uh, ecosystem. So if you want to create a complex ecosystem with complex organisms, with large organisms, you know, all the way up to, to fish and whales, you need a lot of energy at the base of the food web. You need efficient, large organisms. In the modern oceans, those are algae. And in ancient oceans, if you go back a billion years, they were cyanobacteria. They're also green, they're also phototrophic, but they're in volume about a thousand times smaller. And if you start with a, such a tiny creature at the base of the food web, you will never get to something complicated. They don't provide enough energy. The energy transfer from the base of the food web to higher organisms is really inefficient in an entirely microbial, uh, bacterial world. So as well as producing food, which, which is mostly a, a kind of sugar, right? Well, anything. Fat, sugar, DNA, proteins, anything is already produced by the base of the food web. Of course, you know, algae will contain a lot of carbohydrates. That's true. Okay, and as a byproduct of doing that, they also produce oxygen, is that correct? That's, actually, that's right. It's a waste product. And a waste product that's also extremely important for the evolution of complicated things. So if you want to be an efficient, large creature, you need to burn a lot of energy. And you need to burn your food using an efficient fuel, and that's oxygen for animals. So the byproduct is oxygen. So when algae started to rise, we also started to produce more oxygen. So both components, the food as well as the oxygen, became available for animals. And so this was just a, a big leap in, in the uh, conditions that life had to evolve in. 
When when did yeah. this happen? You've you've recently been working on this. When and you figured out around about when it happened. Yeah, so I think I have for 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 the listener, I have to step back because I think it's important to to set the scene and set the time. So so one of the most interesting questions, and in, I think all of science, is when animals first appeared on Earth. And there is a lot of different theories, and there is just now data to test any of them. And one of the theories is that animals only could evolve when they had enough food. But again, just so theory, no data whatsoever. So we wanted to find out when food became abundant in the oceans. And this is the transitions when the entire ocean became, um, when they turned from a bacterial world to one with much more larger and complicated organisms, the so-called eukaryotes. Eukaryotes is an important, important word. Eukaryotes are all the creatures, including animals, plants, fungi, but also single-celled creatures such as amoebae, ciliates, and algae. They have a very complicated cell. They have a nucleus, they have mitochondria, they have a cytoskeleton, and they have a cell volume, a size about a thousand times bigger than much, much more simple bacteria. The ancient oceans on Earth were very simple, only inhabited by bacteria. And the modern oceans are inhabited by much larger creatures, the eukaryotes. And no one knew when that transition happened. And it could have happened somewhere between 2 billion years ago and 550 million years ago. We had absolutely no clue and no data whatsoever. There is no fossils that are preserved that could tell us that. And there's also no so-called molecular clock data that could be used to find out when it happened. We had no clue. So we could not find out if there's any connection between the rise of these more complicated celled organisms and the evolution of animals, because they use these as food source. And so we used the third technology. Uh, we look for molecular fossils. So that's why I'm a chemist. I'm looking at molecules. And what we do is we, we take a piece of sedimentary rock that was laid down in ancient seas crush it to powder and extract that with organic solvents such as alcohols and we get out something that looks that's a brown slurry it looks like coffee it's a crude oil and it contains hundreds of thousands of different biological molecules from different organisms and now comes the trick we can distinguish molecules that are from this tiny phototrophic cyanobacteria and those from much larger and more complicated nutritious algae and so we collected samples from one billion years old to the present and measured the amounts of these molecules through time. And uh, what we found was really was really quite stunning. It's not, I expected sort of a slow, gradual increase at some point in time more than a billion years ago. But what really happened is that we saw an enormous jump of a factor of a thousand exactly 650 million years ago. You are listening to Lost in Science on the Community Radio Network and we are talking to Dr. Jochen Brocks about how algae can tell us when animals first appeared on Earth. Yeah, so that we found it exactly at 650 million years ago was the most exciting thing. It is really the most exciting point in Earth history we could have found this huge jump from a, from a bacterial to a more complicated world because it is sitting in a very small time interval between two so-called snowball Earth events. They are the most dramatic climatic events in Earth history. Um, there's this first snowball from 717 to 559 million years ago. For a period of 50 million years, the entire Earth was actually frozen over. All the continents, all the oceans, and according to some models, even the ocean was frozen two kilometers deep at the equator. We had you know, temperatures around minus 60 degrees for 50 million years. And then the snowball melted eventually after 50 million years and the earth turned into a hothouse. The climate became extremely hot. The oceans were apparently 50 to 60 degrees Celsius 
hot at the equator. So it went from minus 60 degrees to plus 60 degrees. And that only lasted some 15 million years, and then the Earth froze over again in the second snowball. And exactly between the first snowball and the second snowball, in this hot climate in between, animals, not animals, but the algae appeared. More complicated large cells ecosystem appeared. And that was the trigger for the evolution of animals. And you figure this out by looking at the actual molecules in rocks. That's right. So the lucky thing was my PhD student, Amber, Amber Garrett, who is now at Geoscience Australia, she found the, the clue. She found the most important rocks. She found rocks beautifully preserved with organic matter in them from Australia, just from before the first snowball and just after the second snowball. This type of rocks are extremely rare. They're hard to find. They only exist in some places in the world. And only in Australia, they're so well preserved, you can get molecules out of them. We're extremely lucky that these rocks exist at all. There was a chance that, that they don't exist anywhere in the world. But we found them in central Australia, south of Alice Springs. And we also found them in western Australia, in the so-called western officer basin, in absolutely nowhere. Well, so you had to travel out into the middle of the desert, pretty much, to find the rocks that were once under the ocean. Well, we were actually lucky. We only had to travel to Perth and to Alice Springs because that's where the Geological Survey drill core stores are. And uh, mining companies and oil companies had previously drilled deep holes in these deserts because on the surface everything is weathered. You know, it's a red continent. The center of Australia is deeply weathered. You would never find a well-preserved rock on the surface. So we need rocks that come from a kilometer depth underneath the surface. And this is material that was drilled by drilling companies, by mining companies. And after they're finished, they donate this material to the state surveys and scientists can go and collect the material. Yeah, it's interesting that the, uh, the fossil fuel surveys turned up a different kind of fossil that helped you make your discoveries. Yeah, there's, still, there's also still the hope that there's a lot of oil in central Australia. And there's some hope that these very, very old rocks from this time, from around 600 million years ago, actually might have produced oil. It's not impossible. Well, it's all very interesting um, but uh, I think we're running out of time a little bit, so uh, I'd just like to thank you for joining us on Lost in Science, Dr. Brox. Thank you, Stu. have time for on another episode of Lost in Science. Thanks for spending the last half hour with us. Um, we've learned quite a lot about those some pretty amazing Australian research with the Eureka Prizes. And the algae. And the algae. And how the algae changed the world 650 million years ago. Yes. Thank you, algae. Thank you, algae. <laughs> Absolutely. Everyone should say a little thank you to algae. Mm. Lost in Science is recorded at the 3CR studios in Melbourne and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network. If you would like to get in touch with us, 
um, that would be fantastic. We would very much enjoy that. Uh, you can find us on email at lostinsci at gmail.com or you can track us down on Twitter at lostinscience1. Because mm-hmm, we're the best. Number one. Or you can find us on Facebook at Lost in Science on 3CR. Or if that isn't enough for you, you can tune in next week when we will once again get Lost Lost in Science! Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.